All right. Luke chapter 17. Study sheets. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I uh, want to thank you just for uh, the way that things kicked off tonight. You know, just uh, there's something about Wednesdays that just seems to be a constant onslaught of attacks um, mentally, physically emotionally, spiritually, just the whole gamut. It just seems like everything is in stark opposition to what we do here tonight of opening up your word and hearing from you. And Lord, I don't know what everybody else's day was like. I don't know what their week is like. I know many of them, they were doing exams to try to uh, get through and get ready for break. And so God, I don't know if they're tired or if they're just ex excited just to be on break. But uh, whatever the case is, Lord, I ask and pray that we would all clear out our minds, that we would forget about what we've just been through, we forget about what's to come, and we would just focus here and now on your word. That we'd be very present with you, that we would hear from you, that we would glean from you, that we would desire to see your face, that we would desire to hear what it is that you want to take and impart to us in our lives from these passages of Scripture. God, I don't want this to be an ordinary Wednesday night, because this certainly is not an ordinary chapter. In fact, this is quite perhaps the most practical chapter in all of the book of Romans as it pertains to us right now. So I ask that you would get me out of the way because I already feel like I uh, am unprepared. And I want you just to have free course to speak freely to each and every single one of these kids, wherever it is that you have them in their walks with you. We love you, Father. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Title tonight's message, Devotion of the Living Dead, Romans chapter 12. Quite an odd title for a lesson, for a chapter, but hopefully it's jogging your guys' memory and thinking back to a somewhat recent message we had not too long ago that also had a similar theme. Because what we're going to look at very early on tonight is going to harken back to an earlier lesson. But just for kicks and giggles, go ahead and look at your introduction as it has been a couple of weeks since we've looked at things like this. After covering doctrines concerning mankind's sinfulness, God's plan to save man from his sin, the Christian's standing before God, his daily state in the flesh, his eternal redemption secured through the Spirit, and Israel's past, present, and future, we finally come to the practical portion of the book of Romans concerning our daily walk. How's that for a run-on sentence? You guys like that? I just wanted to fit everything in in one succinct review in what was perhaps the smallest introduction I've ever done, but the longest sentence I think I've ever typed. Paul echoes an earlier truth that stands as our key to living righteously. If you guys recall, we just spent time recently going through a parenthesis period. You have chapter 8, which was talking about the Christian's power in the Spirit to overcome the obstacles of the flesh in chapter 7. And then we entered this parenthesis period of 9, 10, and 11. This is dying. And if you could summarize chapters 9, 10, and 11 in one word talking about what those chapters were about. What one word would you use to say to summarize it? What's it about? I can redo all three messages if you'd like, although chapter 11 was pretty heavy doctrinally. Jack? Israel? Thank you! Israel! 
Rebound. <laughs> Israel, chapters 9, 10, 11. Chapter 9 specifically talking about Israel's past. Chapter 10 talking about Israel's present and Israel's future concluding in, or in Romans chapter 11. But does anybody remember specifically, chapter 9 in their past, it was about their past what? Thank you. In election means what? <laughs> I wasn't looking at the board when I did that. What does election mean? When you think election, think what? That was their past. Ten being their present. Reject. Oh, that was good. The O got a little G-like, but not bad. Their present rejection, and then chapter 11 talking about their future. Gosh, that sucks. Resurrection? Yeah. Their future resurrection. And so you guys don't have Romans 12 there, but we'll get there in a second. But Romans 12, 1 starts off by saying, actually, do you want to just give me the first four words? I beseech you, therefore. Good job. That's one of his memory verses for discipleship. Good job. <laughs> it's all right. I only wanted the first four verses right, or the first four words right now. I beseech you, therefore, and one of Corey's unspoken rules of Bible study, whenever you come to the word therefore, you better stop to see why it's there for. As we talked about, these chapters, last week specifically, ending with Israel's future resurrection, God bringing them back from the dead nationally, corporately, bringing their relationship back from the dead so that he can use them in service again. But what event kickstarts that off? What triggers that? What triggers them getting back into service with him? The rapture. Yeah. You guys know we have a podcast where you can listen to these messages, see in case you free. Or, you know, we have study sheets that we pass out every single week. You guys can keep and put in your Bible notes. But I digress. The rapture is what kickstarts this whole thing. The rapture is what, when, when God captures or, or takes up and catches up every Christian, every born-again, blood-washed saint of God, he then goes back to the nation of Israel. He utilizes the 144,000 Jewish witnesses to just ransack this entire place with the gospel because we will be up in heaven with him, with our glorified bodies. Chapter 11 ends with that. But before we get to chapter 12, you guys think... I kept talking about 9, 10, 11 being a parenthesis period. And when you guys read parentheses, like in a book or whatever, you read it, but when you're saying it like as a speech, is it something that you say out loud? Case in point, your introduction. I have some things that were in parentheses here that I did not say out loud because it's just assumed that you're reading it. It's kind of like the same thing with this. A parenthesis, yes, you still read it, and we did read it, but think about what we've come from so far with chapter 6, 7, and 8, talking about the Christian being in Christ. And if you remember far back enough, chapter 8 ended in a pretty similar way as chapter 11, in a which way I've never actually thought about before. Because you guys remember what chapter 8 ends with? God telling us 
that He is going to conform us into the image of His dear Son. That it doesn't matter what we go through in this life, if we are in Christ, and even though, yes, we're going to struggle in this flesh with our sin issues, we're going to struggle with other people and just all kinds of things this world has to offer and all the things that the world is throwing at us, it doesn't matter because God, according to Philippians 1 verse 6, we can be confident of this very thing that He which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 ends talking about our glorification. One day that we are going to get a brand new body that will never sin again against God. And it happens at the rapture, which is what chapter 11 ends with. So what I love about it, because what does Romans 12, 1 say again, those first four words, AJ? I beseech you, therefore. It doesn't matter whether you are talking about 9, 10, 11, or if you go back before the parenthesis to look at chapter 8, what he's about to say in Romans 12, verse 1 applies given the context of whichever one you just read. It's our glorification. In other words, he's trying to get us to understand that what he's about to take us through in Romans chapter 12, it must be viewed in the context of the fact that one day, one day very soon, time's going to be up. One day very soon, we're going to be standing before our God, giving an account for our life at the judgment seat of Christ and for our service unto him and what we did with him while we were in Christ. That day's coming very, very soon. Are you occupying until he comes? If you're not, well, then I want to echo Paul's sentiments. What? That wasn't supposed to happen. It's only supposed to be verse 1. What's going on? Pumpernickel bread. Christian cussing. It was only supposed to be verse 1. I don't want you to see verse 2 yet. I echo Paul's sentiments by saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a what? Yeah, the living dead. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We could spend the rest of the message just on that verse alone. A living sacrifice. You know what a sacrifice is? It's something that is to be dead. It's something that is living, but it's supposed to be dead. And he's begging, he's pleading them in light of the therefore, the context of what we looked at, brethren, by the mercies of God that ye present. That means to give. Hence the reason why it's also said present. To give your bodies a living sacrifice. And it's tied with holiness perfection and this is acceptable unto God and as if that's any kind of small detail he says which is your reasonable service now the reason I was I titled this message what I did is because this harkens back to what I told you guys was a central theme and a philosophy of mine based upon the word of God that I am going to keep in the forefront of your guys's minds and in most of our messages as long as God gives me breath because if you are saved, it is the most important concept that you can learn. And it's what we looked at in Romans chapter 6. If you weren't here for it, or if you forget, I strongly encourage you to go back and check that message out. It's this idea and this concept that is lost in so much of Christianity today. 
That Christ is not interested in you living your life for Him. He's interested in you presenting yourself a living sacrifice so that He can live His life through you. That's what it means to have received His life. I am crucified with Christ, dead. Nevertheless, I live, living dead. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. The very least minimalistic thing you can do is do the exact same for Him. Present your body a living sacrifice. That means waking up every single morning and saying, Lord, you died and you gave me eternal life. And so now here I am presenting myself to you, O Lord, because you're not just my savior. You're my Lord. You are my master. You died so that you can live your life through me, which means every decision I come in contact with today, every person I come in contact with today, every thought that enters into my mind, every choice and decision I'm about to make, and not only what I'm going to make today, but the things that I'm going to make today that are going to affect my future and where I'm going to go to college or who I'm going to date or if I'm going to date or what I'm going to do for a job or for providing for a family. Whatever it is, God, it's your life. It is no longer mine. That is presenting yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And as if that were any small thing, According to this verse, it is. If that is reasonable service, as he ends verse 1 with, I shudder to think what above and beyond the call of duty looks like. But I have a little bit of a glimpse of it in Luke 17. Look at verse 5. And the apostles said unto the Lord. So somebody is saying something to the Lord. Uh, what's that called in other words? Praying. Thank you. Hey, fist bump him. Good job. Get a sucker after class, all right? Praying. Here's their prayer. What is their prayer? Increase our what? <coughs> Faith. You be careful what you wish for. Be careful the prayers that you have to your God. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, which is small, it's, it's insignificant, just a little bit of faith, look what you'd be able to do. Ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. In other words, a little bit of faith you can do the impossible with. Do you believe that? Do you believe that with the seemingly impossible things that are going on in your life? The people you think are never going to hear the gospel from you? The obstacles you think that are just never going to be overcome? The sins that are never going to be put aside? Just a little bit of faith. But look what he says in verse 7. But, in other words, you could have a little bit of faith that you could do the impossible. But, which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, By and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat. So he's speaking in a parable here. Now, I just kind of mentioned it, but Jesus is not just our Savior. He's also our what? Lord. He's our Lord, according to 1 Corinthians. You could check that entire book out in a letter where a church did not see Christ as their Lord as evidenced by the way they lived their lives. 
That word Lord is mentioned more than any other time in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians. He is our Lord, which makes him our master. And so what he's talking about here, he's saying, hey, I'm the master, you guys are the servants, you all get that. But he's asking the disciples, hey, put yourself in my shoes, for example. Put yourselves in my shoes just for this little story here. So you guys get the picture? We're the servants, but he's saying, hey, put yourself in my shoes. You're the master and you guys have a servant. And if you come in, which of you are going to tell your servant, hey, you know what? Why don't you go sit down, take a load off, and you go ahead and eat. And will not rather say unto him, verse 8, make ready wherewith I, the master, may sup, and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. So in other words, yeah, you have school that you're doing. You, some of you might even have jobs that you're involved in. And you're here on Wednesdays and you're here on Sundays and you're involved in discipleship. And yeah, you'll sign up for winter camp and summer camp and you'll come out to that. And yeah, you'll even invite friends to those things. And you will also serve for VBS and you'll go on missions trips to Mexico and Ireland and England and all over the place. You're servants after all, right? Verse 9, doth he thank that servant because he did the things which were commanded him? I trow not. In other words, I think not. <laughs> Why? Verse 10, so likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, all those things I just listed which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants. Why? We have done that which was our duty to do. Serving the Lord is no easy task, and it is no joke. It's no light thing. You want to know what above and beyond the call of duty looks like? It's not this. It's not doing the things you're commanded to do. Christ commanded us to go ye therefore and teach all nations. That involves discipleship, evangelism, and missions. He commands us to do that. These are the things he's saying, hey, if you do just what you're commanded to do, you're unprofitable because you just did what was your duty to do. And if presenting yourself a living sacrifice every single day of your life, saying, not I, but Christ, I must decrease, he must increase, Lord, you live your life through me, if that's reasonable service or your duty, well, let's just say I think that should cause some of us in here to think, I thought I was doing above and beyond what was required of me, but now, maybe not so much. Hmm. So on our outline here, we're going to see in the next seven verses, Romans 12, 1 to 8, point 1, Dead. That's going to be the reoccurring theme throughout this entire chapter. Because you're going to see you can't do half the things that are on this list unless you live as a living sacrifice. The first eight verses are talking about consecrated service and a reminder to let Christ live His life through us. That word consecrated, it means entire. It means fulfilled. Meaning you fulfilled your, your calling. You fulfilled what God asked you to do. It's likened to devotion or dedicating of oneself. If you were to trace that word consecrated in the Old Testament, you'll see that the priests were to consecrate certain 
instruments, certain vessels... We're a vessel in the New Testament. The priests were to consecrate certain vessels or set it aside because that was particularly holy. That was particularly needed for a certain task or act of service. That's sanctification. The setting apart of something that is to be dedicated unto the Lord. You and I are called to live sanctified lives, set apart from the world, set unto God. That's what consecrated means. It's devoted. It's dedicated. Letter A. Dead to living our lives unto ourselves. We just saw that in verse 1. But to summarize all of that, sacrificial service is reasonable service. Keep mentioning Isaiah 53. It's one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Christ's coming and what He would do. And if you could summarize that chapter in two words, He's the sacrificial servant. He's the suffering servant. Laying down his life for others. Because when we do this, well, in point two, we're going to see our need to be dead because it's the only way to prove God's will for your life. Verse two, which was up here the whole entire time, even though I put a transition on it. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Any of you guys in here love language arts or English? That was a trick question. I know no one loves any in, or subjects in school. You do? I like I didn't say like. I said love. Are you devoted to I don't care if you're devoted to it or not. All right. So prefixes, right? Prefixes, right? We have a root word up here that shows up twice. Formed. Formed. We're going to be formed one way or another. Either by God or the world. But he's saying here, don't be conformed. What's the prefix of con mean? Against. With. Uh, together. Yeah. With, yeah, together. Conjoined. Conjoined. Uh, that's why in Spanish, con. Con queso. With cheese. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Good job, Andy. You get a sucker after class, too. You want to get a cookie while you're at it. He says, be not conformed. And you wonder why you're 197. And be not conformed to this world. He told me that before class. Hey, for years he used to make fun of me. So now, payback time. We're going to get to payback here in a little bit. Be not conformed. Okay, English class is over. Be not conformed. In other words, don't be formed with this world. Don't be conjoined or formulated with this world, but rather be transformed. You know what trans means? It's not what you think or what friends at school might define it as. A cross. It means to go beyond to the other side. If you're in here and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, that happened to you at the moment of salvation when Jesus literally made you a new creature. He transformed you. You, you went across. <laughs> but now he's talking to us Christians to have your minds to transform you, to go beyond it. In other words, go across and go beyond so that the world can't even touch you. That's the implication. By the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? 
Well, according to Ephesians 5.26, you know what that says? By the washing of the water of the Word. Your minds need to be washed and cleansed out from all the stupid junk that is pumped into your heads at school every single day. Even if you are sound in your faith and in your walk to not get discouraged or distracted by things like evolution or stuff like that, just the mere fact that you guys are surrounded by all of the garbage that's going on, all the perversion that's going on with your classmates is enough for you to need your minds washed every single day by the washing of the water of the Word to renew your mind. So is it happening? Or are you being conformed to this world? You know, hold your place here. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. Actually, don't hold your place there because you're not in Romans yet. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's why I put it on the PowerPoint. In order for you to not be conformed to this world, you need to grasp the fact that your mind needs renewed because your mind is the battlefield every single day, soldier. Second right. Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, this is a spiritual fight. You can't take an AR-15 into a spiritual fight. That'd be awesome and a really cool movie idea, but getting sidetracked. In other words, you can't fight the flesh with flesh. There's nothing we can do in our power. We can't take rules or, or, or weapons of this world in order to combat the spiritual forces that are against us. But our weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, just like in Jericho. How do we do it? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Imaginations, knowledge. We're talking about the mind here. And bringing into captivity every what? To the obedience of Christ. You ever wonder why in the Old Testament God said, when you go into the land, wipe out every single one of your enemies? Every single one of them? The cattle, the oxen, the asses, the dogs. Oh, and the women and the children as well. Because you need to bring every one of those enemies into captivity. And when you bring it into captivity, you hew it to pieces with a sharp two-edged sword. Every single day. So what are the enemies in your land? What are the enemies in your field? What are these enemies? What's feeding these enemies? Guys, I put something in the group chat that, again, surprisingly, did not get a lot of feedback yesterday. I hope you go back and check out that passage in Deuteronomy 32 about those giants and about what you're supposed to do with those giants. Mind is the battlefield, so it better be getting renewed on a daily basis. Out of all the doctrinal things we've looked at so far, I mean, just think about it. Think about the Romans road and what you know about the Romans road. Do any of those verses occur after chapter 10? No. Think about all the verses that you maybe have memorized in the book of Romans. You realize that that was all doctrinal stuff? All of those famous verses in the book of Romans, how doctrine heavy it is. Like I said, this is the book that God used to present New Testament doctrine in the age of the church. We are just now getting to the daily 
practical application of the book of Romans. These are the verses that are often overlooked when it comes to the book of Romans, but they might just be the most important for your daily walk. And whether or not you're going to succeed and be able to hang your head high on Judgment Day. It's the only way you can prove God's will for your life. Look again at the end of this. When you renew your mind because you're being transformed and not conformed to this world. Why? Because you've started off your day as a living sacrifice. You guys okay over there? Yep. Sure? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because you started off your day as a living sacrifice. When you start off your day as that, you'll be able to know and prove it out what God's will is for you. But look what he says. He says the good, the acceptable. That word acceptable might sound like it's less than good, but that word acceptable actually means well-pleasing, if you want to write that note down. Meaning, oh, it's not just good. Oh, it is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And then he ends it with perfect. Do you guys see the progression here? So on your outline... Here's a simple way you want to put it, and I got this straight from Pastor Rory. You want to know what's good, you want to know what's better, and you want to know what's best. Many of you seniors are starting to hear back from college applications right now. You're starting to get acceptances, and now you have to figure out, okay, which of these are good? And hopefully you already figured that out because hopefully you wouldn't have applied to any of them if they weren't good. But now out of all the good acceptance letters you've got, now you have to decide, hmm, so which of these is better than the others? And then you get rid of the ones that aren't, and you just whittle it down to the better. And now your job and your task is to decide, okay, out of all of these better ones, what's the best one? The best one not for what I want because <laughs> I'm dead. Well, I'm alive, but I'm dead. What's the best option that you want me to do, Lord? That's just one example. Fill in the blank with whatever else God is doing and you, as far as knowing the will of God and what His will is and His plan is for your life. You should always be able to know what's good, what's better, and then go to the best. And as a little teaser and precursor for what we're going to discuss next month with biblical relationships, any of you thinking of dating right now, better not settle for a good. Amen. That's why I broke up with Andy years ago. That's Joke. Okay. You better not settle for the good. Do not settle for better. Every potential person you date is a potential candidate for marriage. You better not settle for anything less than the best that God has for you. I'll stress that more later. You want to know what God's will is? You got to prove it out. You can only prove it when you renew your mind. If you're being likened, if you're being conformed to this world, it's not going to happen. If you're being conformed to this world, it's because you're not doing your reasonable service of being a living dead man. Now you may turn over to Romans chapter 12. Well, he really shotgunned the beginning of this chapter, didn't he? He's not messing around. So next in letter B, we need to see ourselves dead to consider others before ourselves. Look at verse 3. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, 
not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, the body of Christ, speaking of the church, and all members have not the same office. Not everyone's going to do the same thing you're doing. Not everyone's going to be in the same walk of life as you're walking. Don't expect them to be there. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether, wait, no, sorry, verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Point 1, dead to ego and status. We are members of a body, and 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says we are members in particular meaning every single particular person is here and needed for a reason. Each and every single one of you have something to offer. Each and every single one of you have something to give. It's something that we need here as a part of this ministry. So don't discount anybody else. Don't discount the person in the row behind you, the row in front of you. And I better not hear that you're discounting anybody, because then I will have words with you. And I might do like Nehemiah did and lay hands on you. I might have to edit that out of the play of the podcast later. No, I won't. It's biblical. Nehemiah did it. You can't go it alone because we need each other to get the job done. You know what 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says? That should be verse 5. Cross out 15 and put 5. You know what 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says? Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, for our sufficiency is of God. If you're in here and you're thinking that, man, this is all up to me to lead this thing, you are dead wrong. We all need each other. So check ego and status at the coffin when you lay yourself down as a living sacrifice. Next, number two, dead to using our talents for ourselves and expecting everyone to serve the way that we do. Now look at verse 6. What he's going to do here in verses 6 to 8 is he's going to lift, give a list of different gifts, different talents that people have within the body. He says in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace. Did he say that we all have the same gifts? No, in fact, he said the opposite. He said what? Gifts differing. We're all different. No better, no worse, just different. Your brothers and sisters in Christ... Treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Differences and all. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. That word prophesy, don't get tripped up about it. It basically, think about what a prophet does. He proclaims what? The word of God. Yeah, in the Old Testament, God in sundry times and diverse manners spoke to us in times past by the prophets, Hebrews 1.1 says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. We have all of the prophecy we need right here. All we have to do is just proclaim it forth. There's no new prophecy like the Charismatics and Pentecostals teach. It's all right here. But we still proclaim it. We still proclaim it forth. That's what prophecy is. So if you're a preacher... Let us prophesy or preach according to the proportion of faith. Uh, remind me again, what does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith cometh by 
hearing and hearing by the Word of God, which is how our minds are going to be renewed because they're being washed by the water of the Word. And that's how our faith and our gifts and talents are going to increase. Boy, I better make sure I'm in my Bible. Verse 7, or ministry. Let us wait on our ministering. That word wait there, think about a waiter. He's not saying wait and be patient on it. He's saying tend to it like a waiter would. Hey, do you have a ministry that you're involved in? Maybe it's not only in the church, but maybe you have a particular ministry that you kind of held, you know, head up officially, unofficially, whatever, here. Maybe you send cards out to people. Maybe you're texting people every single week. That's your ministry to encourage them. If you have a ministry, tend to it like a waiter would. Anybody here go out to like a sit-down restaurant recently? and had like a really awesome waiter or waitress, and then they sucked halfway through, and they just stopped tending to your needs. Doesn't bode well for them come tip time, does it? No. A good waiter continues to tend to your needs at your table. If you have a ministry, you better keep waiting on it. You better keep tending to it. You better keep looking for areas of improvement that you can do better in. Don't just let it go. Don't just let it slip. So if you're one that you want to encourage and edify somebody through texting or sending cards out, don't let it slip. Keep it up. If you don't have anything, well, today would be a great time to get something done. And you fellas can help out tonight by putting the chairs back in the fellowship hall. Didn't plan on that. He says, or he that teacheth on teaching. In other words, wait on teaching. Tend to it. If you want to be a teacher, a discipler, make sure you tend to it. Make sure you're not just looking at your discipleship book right before you go to meet with your disciple and then just thinking that the Holy Spirit's going to do the rest of the way. Tend to it. Maybe throw in some cross-references. Maybe throw in something that God shared you, showed with you while you're renewing your mind that fits with the lesson. Tend to it. Verse 8, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, being an encourager. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. What are you using your talents for? Is it for yourself? Are you expecting everybody to pick up their slack when you're not even pulling the weight yourself? You know, I will say, you know, some of you have been using your gifts of exhortation and ministering to others, whether it be reaching out or just doing little things here and there just to make sure that no one's feeling left out, making sure that you're reaching out and making sure that everybody feels just as welcome here. Keep it up. Tend to it. You're doing an excellent job. Keep at it. And some of you are stepping out in faith and you're starting to let your talent through. You're starting to let your gift out to others and it's fearful. And it's frightening. And it makes your palms all clammy. And it doesn't make you feel good. But be encouraged. Because God gave you that talent. That's right. If He gave you that gift, if He gave you that talent, He's going to be the one to make sure that you succeed in it. He just wants you to step out in faith and trust Him. And everything will be okay. If you're not, be of good cheer. Be strong and very courageous. Remember God saying that to Joshua before they went in to pull down the strongholds because they presented themselves as living sacrifices. 
you know why God gave us these gifts and these talents according to Ephesians 4? We won't turn there, but you want to check out those verses later. Ephesians 4, 8 and verses 11 to 14. He says three things. It's for the perfecting of the saints, discipleship, for the work of the ministry, serving, and for the edifying of the body, encouraging your fellow peers. So let me ask you, I kind of already mentioned this earlier, but are you discipling anyone? Are you perfecting other saints by sitting down and taking them through the Word of God? If not, do you need discipled? If you're being discipled, or maybe you started discipleship, how is that going? If we were to pull your discipler up here to give a report of how things are going, what would they say? So how are you doing the perfecting of the saints? Uh, for the work of the ministry, the second thing, are you serving in the church? If so, what's your heart attitude when you serve? You know what absolutely scares me? I've shared a little bit with my story before. You know, there's moments, I think there's moments and seasons like this in everyone's life, but you know, you know, I told you before, like there are times where I've served and I've served a lot, but maybe my heart wasn't completely in it or not. I wonder if I'm going to get up there and present that before the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ. And because my heart wasn't in it, I'm going to look down and like, oh, that's wood, hay, and stubble. Hey, what's that fire do? Oh, it's burning it all up. And there goes my reward. And that was really laborious too. Laborious? Laborious? It's a lot of work. Mm. And now it's up in smoke because I had a hard heart and a horrible latitude when I was serving. You know, that's why 2 Corinthians 5, talking about the judgment seat of Christ, it says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. That's going to be a terrifying day. And lastly, for the edifying of the body. Are you edifying the people here? Are you praying for them? Had a whole heck of a lot of stuff going on this week. I've not been praying like I should. Probably because I wasn't a living sacrifice. And if that's my reasonable service, what kind of service did I give off this week? Hmm. Point two, the second half of Romans chapter 12, as we wrap this up, the remaining verse is basically saying, hey, you're supposed to be dead because it's the only way to succeed or to successfully do what God requires of you. Letter A, dead. So add to your faith and grow. Oh, I seem to remember hearing add to your faith somewhere before. Anoint thine eyes. 2 Peter chapter 1. Huh. Look at verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. That word dissimulation means fake. It means to be phony. It means you're just doing it for a show. Abhor or hate that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Hey, you want to add to your faith? You want to grow? One point one, you need to be dead to being fake with your love and hating what he hates through the knowledge of his word. Ah, oh, stink. Pause. Time out. 
<laughs> we gotta go back. I forgot these cross references are up here for the talents part. First Peter 4.10, as every man hath received the gift, you guys all have talents God gave you, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, the word of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Did God give you a talent? He's not expecting you to start a church tomorrow, but just do something with what he has given you. Do you remember Luke 19, the parable of the talents? Gave this guy one talent, gave that guy one talent, gave that guy one talent. This guy reproduced his, got ten. This guy reproduced, got five. This guy was ashamed and hid it. This picture of the judgment seat. Read Luke 19 later on the night. God doesn't expect us all to do the same thing, but he does expect you to do something with what he's given you. Something to the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We talked about that Sunday in main service. To whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8.12 For if there be first a willing mind... It is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Again, use your talents that God gave you, not somebody else's talents. Don't try to co-opt what God gave somebody else. Do it to the ability that you have, and not according to what you don't have. But you know what? If you just have a willing mind, a renewed mind, a transformed mind, because you're a living sacrifice, you'll be able to do it. And as a result, you'll be able to glorify God in heaven. Okay. Now back to the future. 90, Psalm 97.10, about being fake with your love. That says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of His saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Do you love God? John 14.15 says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. If you love Him, you will hate anything and everything that comes against Him. That comes against his word. Notice how he did not say every one. Because God loves all men. You hate the things that are going to slow down your walk and your progress with the Lord. You hate the things that are going to prevent you from presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. You hate those things. Psalm 119.104 says, says, Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Some of you are getting into a lot of conversations at school with friends who believe false doctrine. Doctrine or false ways that go against the precepts of God. It's because you love Him. You that love the Lord hate evil. Well, I'll tell you what, when your faith is being called out, when you hear what's going on in the name of Christianity, or if you see the sinfulness that's going on in your schools, you'll call it out because you hate it and you love Him. Otherwise, maybe your love is fake. Point two. You're dead to being a respecter of persons by showing true brotherly kindness. Look down at verse 10. It says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with what? Romans 12.10, with what? In honor, preferring one another. Jump down to verse 16. He says a similar thing. 
Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. In other words, there's no popularity contest in here. You might have your clique, or you might have people that you hang out with. Again, there's nothing wrong if you're closer with certain people than others. That's normal. That's called friendship. But here he's saying, hey, you might be up here, and there might be people that you consider to be men of low estate, people that are beneath you. And he's saying, condescend to their level. Go down and be with them. Meet them where they're at. In other words, don't just stay with us four and no more. Branch out. We're brethren. That's how Paul started off this entire chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I finish verse 16? Be not wise in your own conceits. Don't be a respecter of persons. Don't look at somebody and put them up on a pedestal because of their faith. Don't think there's some great super Christian. That goes for your leaders. That goes for other Christians that may be a part of this ministry or a part of another ministry. That goes for missionaries. That goes for pastors. Be not a respecter of persons. James 2.9 even says that. But if ye have respect to persons, you, <laughs> yikes, ye commit what? And are convinced of the law as transgressors. You put some up on a pedestal, don't be surprised when they fall off it. And they will. They'll let you down. You know what Philippians 2.3 says about the whole idea of, you know, condescending to men of low estate? It says that for us to esteem one another better than ourselves. In other words, look at everybody else, and your mind shouldn't be, man, glad I'm not like that guy. That's a pharisaical mindset. You're like a Pharisee when you think that. Instead, look at them and you're like, they're better than me. If you don't see it, maybe it's because you haven't gotten the chance to get to know them. And you probably should reach out to them and go get coffee with them. Go get wings with them. Shoot guns with them. You guys can't do that. Take Andy to go shoot guns with them and invite me. Get to know them. And you might find something out about them. You're like, holy smokes, you do that? Wow, I... You really are better than me. Man, rubber's really starting to hit the road now. Very practical tonight. Number three, look at verse 11. Not slothful in, that word is busyness there. In other words, in the midst of your crazy chaotic schedule with final exams this week and getting ready for Christmas break and getting ready for the holidays, in the midst of your busyness, don't be lazy. Because, why he's saying that, is because it can be very, very easy for us to convince ourselves of how godly and holy we are when it appears as though we're a lot more busy than what we actually are. In other words, in the midst of your crazy, chaotic schedule, don't skimp out on the fundamentals. Just because you have final exams does not mean that you need to study more for it to the point where you sacrifice spending time with God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you're getting a 4.0 and beyond, hey, do all things heartily as unto the Lord. Not telling you to be an awful student. Not telling you just to chuck it all and just say whatever. 
but do you need to spend as much time studying? Or can you dial it back a little bit and maybe spend more time with the Lord? Now, those of you who may be falling under the 2.0 side, maybe spend more time when you're studying. Don't be slothful with the busyness, not slothful in busyness. Fervent in spirit, he says. That means zeal. That means passion. That means fire. Get jazzed up serving the Lord on your outline. In other words, you're dead to laziness so that you can zealously do what's right with the spirit of virtue. Anybody remember what virtue is? And does anybody see what I'm doing with the study sheet so far? talked about some of these not too long ago. What does virtue mean? Doing the right thing with a right heart attitude. I love 2 Corinthians 7.11 talking about this fervent, this fervent passion, this zeal. Paul says that when we repent and genuinely repent of whatever sin issue we have in our lives. For behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, because worldly sorrow doesn't lead to repentance. What carefulness it wrought in you to not commit the same sin again, to watch where you put yourself and what positions you put yourself so you don't compromise again, so you don't be conformed to the world. Yea, what clearing of yourselves you have a renewed mind. Yea, what indignation. You're wrathful against anything that is going to prevent you from walking further with God like that sin did. He's saying when you have a genuine repentance, yea, what fear it produces in you because you have a glimpse of your sin from God's perspective and not your own guiltiness. I'll talk about that at another time. I really want to dive in further with these passages. Just know this, if you're one of those Christians in here that you have 1 John 1, 9 memorized because it's been your get out of spanking from God free card, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one of those verses that people just seem to memorize just because they're like, okay, I know if I just pray to God, then he'll forgive me of this sin and boom, I can go and not even worry at all about doing the sin again. Then I submit to you that you are looking at your sin from how it made you feel after you committed that sin. And what you need to do is look at your sin through God's eyes and what it does to Him. This is the result of godly sorrow that worketh to repentance, as verse 1 and verse 10 says in this chapter. You might want to go check this chapter out later on tonight. It fear produces, yea, what vehement desire, a passion for Christ. Yea, what zeal. It's fervent in spirit, like Paul just said in Romans 12. Yea, what revenge. You get to do what's right in the face of the enemy, in the face of the spiritual opposition that's trying to get you to stay conformed to the world. But uh-uh, you're a living dead man now. You're a living sacrifice in the Lord. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Because that's genuine repentance. Next, verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Number four, you're dead to hopeless, praiseless living as you endure hardness patiently. Patience add to your faith. Man, in the midst of your hardness, are you thanking God? Are you praising Him? 
Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints. You're helping others out. You are given to hospitality. You are committing yourself wholly unto it. You're giving your all to be hospitable to those in your ministry. Number five, you're dead to half-hearted service and you're giving yourself wholly to true charity. You ever see this verse in Hebrews 13 too? He says, Be not forgetful and entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. When was the last time you struck up a conversation with a complete stranger? Not because we were going to the mall ministry, but just because you saw maybe an old lady or you saw just some stranger and just decided to have a conversation with them. Not because you were like, um, Hey, who do you think Jesus is? Hey, got a red and blue card. Which one's bigger? Hey, would you give one of your eyes for a million dollars? How valuable is your soul? That's, that can be contrived when we kind of start evangelistic conversations like that, and it can be very, very fake and phony. But when was the last time you were just maybe sitting down, like maybe you're waiting to go get seated at a restaurant, and you just see like strangers nearby, and you just decided to talk to them? This is going to sound like a very boomer statement. I don't care. There are statistics that show that when you are on this all the time, and when you are so used to communicating with human beings this way, that you lose the skill of being able to have eye contact and communicate and have a conversation with other human beings face to face. It's just a, it's just a statistic. It's truth. <laughs> have a conversation, you might be entertaining angels. Do you have a love for people? Do you see people through God's eyes to do that? Next, verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Number six. You're dead to vengeance as you exude or display temperance to pray for those that use you. That's what Luke 6.28 says. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Maybe you have someone in here, whether it's in here or a friend at school or maybe another Christian friend elsewhere who has despitefully used you before. It sucks. Hate it. Comes with the territory, unfortunately. Endure hardness as a good soldier and pray for them which despitefully use you. Have self-control. Don't retaliate. And lastly, number eight, you're dead to keeping quiet when others need godly encouragement. Verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And I put that out in the group me this week with Brandon Brown. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. In other words, you're putting yourself in their shoes. If somebody's going through a hard time, and again, reach out in here and you might find somebody is going through a difficult time. Reach out to them and remember them as though you're bound with them, as though you're struggling with the same thing they are. And then which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. And lastly, in letter B, we need to be dead. Because it's the only way to do the impossible for Christ's sake. Because you know what you find out? Point one. Some hills just aren't worth dying on. 
Look at verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You know why he said that? Because things are going to happen in your life that are going to challenge that. And you're going to be tempted to retaliate, even if you're in the right. Because tailbearers love to gossip about you. You know what a tailbearer is? It's someone who takes something that is true, but they put their own personal slant on it and turn it into gossip. And really, the application of what they might be saying about you is used as malicious harm towards you to slander you. It's going to happen to you. Trust me on that one. Even so, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's impossible. It's impossible. The only way it becomes possible is when you die to self every single day. Every single hour. You're giving your life over to Christ, saying, Lord, this isn't my life. It's yours. It's yours. You all should read the story that I have on your outline in 1 Samuel chapter 2 about a young man who was pursuant to get vengeance, to right a wrong, and he was in the right to pursue after it, but he ended up dying on a hill. Read that in 2 Samuel chapter 2 later on the night. Asahel is his name. The guy literally pursued just so that he could right a wrong. Pursued and was determined. You could even say determined to a fault. And when he pursued his enemy up that hill, ended up getting slain by that very same enemy. Same thing happens. You might be in the right. You might be the wronged party and you're trying to right, right the wrong and rectify and set things straight and it might just be the death of you. Some hills aren't worth dying on. You ever heard the phrase, don't make a mountain out of a molehill? I'm good at doing that. Making huge mountains out of things that don't matter. Let it go. And lastly, we need to be dead to forgive others as God has you. Look at verse 17. Or, no, where in the world am I? Verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, don't chase after him. Feed him. If he thirst, don't go and try to smite him yourself. Give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That's how you get your vengeance. That's how you right the wrong. Anybody know what Proverbs 15.1 says? A soft answer turneth away wrath. But grievous words stirreth up anger. I'll go into the story another time, but just know I'm not perfect. 
That happened to me this week. Where instead of having a soft answer, I was grievous to someone at work. And it hurt my testimony. I was in the right. I knew I was in the right. But I pursued up that hill. And even though I'm right, is that really going to matter when that person is standing before God and I look down and see my hands are covered in their blood? Because I hurt chances, possibly, of sharing the gospel with them. I made it right afterwards. But to bring it even more closer to home, Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Made it right with them, but who knows if the gospel will get presented through my witness to them. Hopefully God sends someone who has a little bit more of a soft answer to them. But what about in here? Does anybody need to do this verse tonight and get business done? Or maybe someone hurt you? Maybe you need to forgive them because you need to see yourself in the eyes of God and how for Christ's sake. You know what that means? It's not a curse word that people use. It, it is, but not in this sense. For Christ's sake, because of what He did to His own Son, what He allowed to have happen to His own Son, on your behest, He's forgiven you. Think about how He would feel as a father when He sees us not forgiving each other. I did that to my own son, and this is how they're going to treat one another? Was it worth it? Absolutely. He'd say that every single time. It was worth it. But man, me as a human father, if I put my son through any kind of chastisement and punishment on behalf of someone else because I wanted them to be reconciled, and I saw them just trampling my son underfoot with the way they lived, it would make me irate. We need to see what God's done for us, and we need to forgive one another. But the only way you can do that, the only way you can do any of this, is to be a living dead man. A living sacrifice. Let's bow our heads.